This is the Econ Minute Podcast, where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. Along the way, you'll discover that this podcast is about more than economics, and it's more than a minute. I'm Eric Fruits. I'm an economist based in Portland, Oregon. My day job is in economic consulting, where I serve as an expert witness in litigation. I'm also an adjunct professor. And remember, adjunct is just a fancy way of saying part-time. Please visit the Econ Minute blog at econminute.com. That's econminute.com. You know how to spell econ, and I know you know how to spell minute. econminute.com. It has daily updates. You can also contact me through the blog or just email info at econminute.com. This week's podcast will discuss the recent efforts to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Next, we'll talk about why people in India are so short and why people in the Netherlands are so tall. And then we'll wrap it up with a Brado Burger. This is the Econ Minute Podcast. Welcome. There's an old expression that says, no good deed goes unpunished. Now, raising the minimum wage may sound a lot like a good deed, but it delivers a lot of punishment and it punishes those that it seeks to help. For example, for the past few years, youth unemployment in Oregon has been about five percentage points worse than the U.S. as a whole. The labor force participation of Oregon's youth has been declining faster than the rest of the U.S. In other words, young people looking for work cannot find work. And, even worse, it's so hard for the young to find a job that they've given up looking. However, as unemployment has grown and labor force participation has shrunk, Oregon has seen a steady rise in the state's minimum wage to among the highest in the country. Now, this isn't some crazy coincidence or an episode of Portlandia where young people come here to retire. It is because it is too expensive to employ young people or unskilled people. It's because of Oregon's sky-high minimum wage. In fact, as a whole, Oregon's unemployment and labor force participation rate are worse than the nation as a whole, young and old. Minimum wage is also not only about the young. It's about the unskilled, the elderly, the disabled, or the person just trying to get his or her life back on track. Now, this isn't just me saying this. In fact, most economic evidence, and that's peer-reviewed evidence in academic journals, indicates that increasing minimum wages are associated with reduced employment. Indeed, a recent comprehensive review of research by the U.S. Congressional Budget Office, also known as the CBO, finds that the negative impacts are felt through wide portions of the economy, with youth unemployment disproportionately damaged. CBO's analysis is based on an increase in the federal minimum wage. That's nationwide. And because it's nationwide, businesses have a harder time moving across state lines to avoid it. State-level impacts, on the other hand, are likely to be much larger because many employers operate in a national labor market or even international labor market, and they can shift their staffing across state and national lines. The bills under consideration in Oregon and many other states would raise the minimum wage as high as $15 an hour. Any of these bills are likely to reduce total wage income in the state. Steep minimum wage increases being proposed would take income from one group of workers in order to benefit another group of workers, without increasing, and more likely actually decreasing, total wage income. While some employees would see a modest increase in their annual salaries, many others would be unable to find, find an employment at all and would have no wage income. An increase in the minimum wage only affects those who can still find and keep their jobs. 
So a $5 increase on nothing is still nothing. In fact, it's very likely that the gains to those who will see a boost in their wages would be more than offset by the losses to those who cannot find work at those wages. In other words, workers, as a whole, would be worse off with a higher minimum wage. It's not just my analysis that finds a net negative impact of raising the minimum wage. In July 2014, the Oregon Legislative Revenue Office concluded that raising the minimum wage by just $2 an hour in the state would have long-run negative impacts on employment and incomes. Now, just a few weeks ago, research was published in one of the top economics journals, the Journal of Political Economy. The title of the article is, How Effective is the Minimum Wage at Supporting the Poor? The author's conclusions are stunning. He finds, quote, The costs imposed by the minimum wage are paid in a way that is more regressive than a sales tax, unquote. What the research finds is that the biggest chunk of a minimum wage increase gets eaten up in payroll and income taxes, about 25%. Then, the rest of the increase gets eaten up by paying higher prices, because minimum wage increases get passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices. Sure, consumers might be spending more, but they may not be getting more. They may be paying for more for milk, for food, and so on. This is important new research, and it blasts open a huge hole in the argument that raising the minimum wage magically puts more money in the economy and in turn would boost business. That's a form of trickle-up economics, and as we all know, nothing really trickles up. So, in other words, after the government gets its cut, the minimum wage earners end up paying for their own minimum wage increases. It's a bit like shifting money from one pocket to another while dropping a few coins along the way to get picked up by the tax collector. If politicians seek policies to increase employment and incomes, their energies would be best spent on legislation that will make it easier for businesses to hire workers and easier for job seekers to find work. Raising the minimum wage does neither. When you flip through a lot of economics journals, you learn something new almost every day. Today, I learned that people in India are short, and I mean really short. Now, as someone who went to graduate school to study economics, I've come to know quite a few Indians and people of Indian descent. Some have been tall, some have been short, some have been thin, and some have been fat. But I've never walked away thinking to myself, gee, Indians sure are short. And that means I never really stayed up late at night wondering, why are Indians so short? So first, let's get an idea of how short short really is. According to one easily obtainable set of data, the average American male, age 20 or older, is about just over 5 feet 9 inches tall. The average Mexican from Mexico is about 5 foot 6 inches tall. The average Indian adult male is just under 5 feet 4 inches tall. And that's shorter than the average North Korean male who has had to suffer through years of malnutrition. So apparently the discrepancy has been enough to keep two economists up at night asking, why are Indians so short? Indeed, their working paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research has the obvious title, Why Are Indian Children So Short? The authors begin that by noting that Indian children are shorter than many sub-Saharan African countries. In other words, these children are shorter than children from other much poorer countries in the world. Then, they note something really curious. The authors find that the difference in height between Indian and African children gets worse with birth order. 
In other words, there's a difference in height between Indian and African firstborn children, and the difference gets bigger with the second child, the third child, and so on. And the difference is bigger between Indian and African girls. This finding leads the authors to conclude that a preference for eldest sons in India leads to a significant unequal allocation of resources within families in India. In other words, the older boys get more food and more health care. This preference includes a desire, one, to have at least one son, and two, for the eldest son to be healthy. The researchers who published this article, who are themselves Indian, Note that the eldest son preference can be traced to at least two aspects of Hindu religion. First, Hinduism prescribes a system in which the aging parents live with their son, typically the eldest, and they bequeath their property to him. Second, Hindu religious texts emphasize post-death rituals, which can only be conducted by a male heir, such as lighting the funeral pyre, taking the ashes to the Ganges River, and organizing death anniversary ceremonies. The result is a strong preference for a son and a desire for that oldest son to be healthy enough to fulfill his obligations to his aging parents. The other result is a nation with a small group of relatively tall men and a large group of much shorter men and women leading to an overall depression in average height. You really do learn something every day. Elsewhere, there's been quite a bit of news, even in places like the Huffington Post, about a recent study that tried to address the question of why are the Dutch, the people from the Netherlands, why are the Dutch so tall? It turns out that the Dutch really are tall. They're among the tallest people in the world. And even more amazing, as they've gotten taller over time, over the past 50 years, they've actually grown in height. And so the big question is, why are the Dutch so tall? Now here's what's really interesting, because it really tells us something about how science is done. Whereas before when we talked about why are Indian children so short, the researchers did a very rigorous study about why are they short and who are they short compared to, and maybe there's some explanation involving things like birth order. Well, the Dutch study is a lot more interesting because it actually tells us absolutely nothing. They say it may be diet. They say it may be the environment. They say, well, it's not any of those things, so it may just be genetics which really tells us that a lot of times we think we know what we're talking about, when actually we don't. What's really surprising is that a study that really tells us nothing got so much press and even made it into the Huffington Post. I bet if you took a poll and asked what is the most famous dinosaur out there, most people would probably say the T-Rex, the awesome Tyrannosaurus Rex. But if you looked at the second choice, a close second would probably be those long-necked dinosaurs made famous by the long neck from the land before time and the dino-powered shovel used by Fred Flintstone at the Slate Rock and Gravel Company. Now let's look at this. The brontosaurus was first identified in 1879. But before that, two years earlier, a very similar-looking dinosaur was identified as an apatosaurus. At the time, the science was settled. Apatosaurus and brontosaurus were two different kinds of long-necked dinosaurs. Less than 30 years after that, the science was settled yet again. In 1903, a paleontologist named Elmer Riggs concluded that brontosaurus and apatosaurus were essentially the same type of dinosaur. So science settled on the name apatosaurus, brontosaurus was left in the scientific dust while it carried on in popular culture in the form of Fred Flintstone's Brono Burgers. Fast forward to 2015 and the science is settled yet again. 
Now a new study concludes that Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus fossils appear different enough to belong to separate groups after all. In other words, the Brontosaurus is back and the science is settled yet again. The Bronto provides a valuable lesson about science, namely that science is never settled. If the settled science can shift so much over something as simple as a bunch of dinosaur bones, how can we ever say the science is settled about something as complex and dynamic as climate change? That's it for this week's Econ Minute podcast, where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. Please visit the Econ Minute blog at econminute.com. It has daily updates. You can contact me through the blog or just to me email info at econminute.com. This is Eric Fruits with the Econ Minute. Hope to see you next week.